here we are outside the studio. I am your host. This is Tessa. Very excited to be with you today. I have a very special guest. I've been looking forward to this interview for, gosh, Matthew, it's been like months now that we've had this on the calendar. Um, but I, I know you're on the author circuit, so to you, it's probably just like another day at the office. Anyways, I do a lot of talking. Yeah. Yes. Well, and you have a podcast too, so you know, you, you do yes. this for a living. Uh, well, let me introduce you. Let me give the lay of the land where we're going with this conversation today. I want to give people a little bit of background. And I, I want to start with your bio. So Matthew Dix, he's here with us today. He's the author of Someday is Today and nine other books. He is a best-selling novelist, nationally recognized storyteller, and award-winning elementary school teacher. He teaches storytelling and communications at universities, corporate workplaces, and community organizations. Dix has won multiple Moth Grand Slam story competitions. Just a little side note, this isn't in his actual bio, but oh my God, I love Moth Oh my God, you got to tell me some stories from speaking at Moth Grand Slam. Okay, so I will continue really quick. Um, He's won multiple Moth Grand Slam story competitions and together with his wife created the organization Speak Up to help others share their stories. They also co-host the Speak Up Storytelling Podcast. He lives in Connecticut with his family and you can visit him online at matthewdix.com. I'll make sure that link is in the show notes so people can easily find you. Matthew, welcome. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. (sighs) Yes, likewise. We're so excited to dive into this conversation. Um, I guess one more thing I do want to share a little bit about the book someday. Um, Someday is today, which to me and, you know, I think whenever we're writing something, we have this idea or concept in mind that we're trying to get across. Maybe it's multiple ideas or concepts, but when I think of someday as today, um, I think about all the things that I've been putting on the back burner, all the the grand ideas I have about my life, and and then all of the reasons why I haven't done these things yet or haven't achieved them yet. So this conversation is one that I internally have with myself all the time. So I'm excited to talk to another human being about it. (laughs) Um, and then, and then I want to share this little brief, uh, passage that your lovely published publicist shared with me, which is the Japanese proverb. The day you decide to do it is your lucky day, but how do we make the decision to actually start and complete creative things? So that is the question, right? Matthew, how do we do that? How do we start? Yeah, I think it starts with the recognition that someday is today. I think the problem that folks have is they seem to be under the impression that there's an infinite number of some days in our lives. And there isn't, tragically. You know, we are definitely finite creatures and there is an end to everything. And I think what happens is most people just keep dreaming and they don't sort of tackle those things. And then either they run out of days or they sort of reach a point in their life where they realize it's too late. Mm-hmm. They decide that they've missed their window of opportunity. And if you talk to hospice workers, they'll tell you that in the final days of people's lives, they are often consumed with regret. And it is often regret over the things they have not done. Mm-hmm. And that pains me to no end. So I, 
spend an enormous amount of time trying to encourage people to understand that your some days will run out oftentimes quicker than you think. And um, I don't want anyone in their final days to be thinking about what they could have done with their lives. Yeah. Well, and it, it seems to me like when we have these ideas about someday I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and then, and then there's like a whole host of dialogue that happens, right? Maybe it's, um, an internalized dialogue that came from childhood, a negative message from a friend, a negative message from a family member. So do we have to silence those negative messages in order to start our someday? Well, we don't have to, but I, I do talk a lot about it. You know, I think ultimately we have to begin moving forward. You know, there's this, this phrase that people like to say, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I hate that phrase because that assumes that what will produce is good. Mm. And so I always say, don't let perfect be the enemy of progress, which means we have to acknowledge the fact that we're gonna make some terrible things along the way, that we're going to fail repeatedly in trying to make our dreams come true. But as long as we're moving forward and actually taking action, that's sort of the way to launch anything. But having said that, it is really important to silence the critics. It's important to surround yourself with positivity and to maximize the positivity we have in our lives. So I have lots of strategies about how to, to both limit the negativity and those negative voices while at the same time sort of you know, amplifying anything that we have that's positive in our life. What would you say would, would be a nice one to start with uh, in terms of strategy? Where would you start? Or is there a starting point? Well, I like to start with things that are sort of easy to do. You know, I like sort of instantaneous progress. And so one of the things I talk about is that our brains are tragically wired to remember the negative. And that worked out really well for us when we were hunting, hunters and gatherers. We had to know like sort of which bush killed Uncle Harry you know, and which bush is safe to eat. And so remembering the negative when you're struggling to find food and survive, you know, mountain lions, that's important. But now the world is filled with like locked doors and Doritos. We don't have to worry about those existential problems anymore. And yet we're still wired to remember the negative. You know, as a teacher, I can tell you that the balance is about six positives will eventually overcome a negative. So you need to hear six positive statements for every negative one that you hear, which is a terrible ratio. It's not really an achievable ratio in most of our lives. So what I tell people is to, in order to amplify the positivity in your life, what I do is if someone says something nice to me, if someone emails me something kind, if I get a a nice Facebook message or a tweet that says something wonderful to me, I collect those compliments. Mm -hmm. I have a document where I just, I simply cut and paste every kind thing that is said to me and I put it in a document. And then I frequently go to that document and just sort of scroll randomly and land on something that someone once said that was positive about me. And any moment where I feel my spirit is sort of low or my enthusiasm is lagging, I have a source to go where there is positivity waiting. And the best thing is when you stumble upon a compliment that's like six years old that you have completely forgotten about, and now it's right back in your life again. And some person who, you know, is no longer around you and maybe someone you don't even know anymore is now sort of reiterating something positive to you. So I think that's an easy way to begin taking the positive things we hear in our lives and sort of maximizing them to the greatest benefit. And we deserve it. We deserve to hear these positive things. 
I love that. That's such a great practice. I do something similar, although I kind of, there's this back and forth in my mind about, well, should I keep this as a digital document? What if I get a hard copy? And then I get kind of like lost in the nuance of what is the appropriate way to store these positive things, which I think is a thing that happens that can impede us from making that first step is all of the questions we have about okay, I'm going to start this thing. Where do I start? It feels overwhelming to, let's say, go write a book, you know? Sure. Although, you know, everything basically in the digital world today is cut and pasteable. So Mm -hmm. if you start recording your compliments in a Word document and you decide three weeks from now, this is a bad way to go. I want to put it in Evernote so it's on my phone or I want it in a Google Doc so I can access it on any computer you really have no excuse at this point. You can simply cut and paste it to any place you need it to be. So again, that forward momentum, like just start somewhere. And if it's not the best place, eventually you'll find the best place. But don't let those compliments, those kind words slip through your fingers while you're sort of fumbling around for the best medium to record them in. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I love that. What inspired you to write this book, Some Days Today? Well, the question I get the most often, I, I tend to be standing in front of people a lot as an author and as a storyteller and a speaker. And when it comes time for questions and answers, the question I always get is, how do you manage to do all the things that you do? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, being a teacher and a novelist and a speaker and a consultant, all the jobs that I have on top of being a father and a husband and a terrible golfer and a cat lover and all of these things, uh, it sort of seems improbable to people that I've managed to accomplish all these things. And I really am just an ordinary person who sort of maximized his life in such a way that I get these things done. And so when I get asked that question, I always think in my head, well, if we had 13 hours, I could go through my whole plan with you. But no one really wants me to speak to them for 13 hours, not not even my wife. So I would often toss off two or three suggestions at one of these events I was in. But I always feel like I'm just leaving them with nothing, really. I'm just giving them a couple ideas that won't really coalesce into something meaningful. And so the book was the attempt to answer that question that I got asked the most, which Mm. is how do I manage to get everything done that I get done? And to sort of reinforce the idea that I'm not a special person, that I'm not, you know, I wasn't born with any gift or talent. It really is just a desire to make the best use of my time so I can make as many of my dreams come true as possible. Hmm. I love that. I'm curious to know. So it seems to me like there's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of creative juice that you are able to access um, when you're dreaming up, you know, a podcast or a grand grand slam moth story or um, inspiring young minds as a school teacher or standing in front of whatever audience it is that you are standing in front of. Do you think it's... like, how do you tap your creativity? Is that something that feels innate to you? Do you feel like it is a daily practice? Is it a combination of the two? For those of us that feel a little bit uninspired or unable to access this idea of creativity? I have things in the book, like lots of strategies, but I think the, the most important thing I always think is that we have to be listening at all times and taking note of the reactions that we're having to the things that are happening around us. So we need to be reading a lot and we need to be 
paying attention to the world and listening carefully to what people say, and then also be paying attention to what we're thinking. Because I think most of I, most of the ideas I get, most of the creative thoughts I have come from someone says something to me and it causes me to think. And I think that happens for everybody. What I think happens after that though is nobody sort of takes a moment to write it down or to pursue that thought, that line of thinking. So someone says something to you and it hits you viscerally for a moment and then you're off making dinner. And that thought is now lost to the ether. And so I think what creative people do, we don't sort of just sit and meditate and ideas come from, you know, the font of creativity. I really think it's a, it's a mixture of we're gathering stuff from the world and allowing it to sort of interact with us and with, with other parts of the world. And that creates content ultimately, like the creative you know, the creative juices. And I also think we have to be careful not to judge any of our creative ideas. So if we have a lot of outlets, if we just think, well, that's an idea, I don't know what to do with it yet, that's great. Like we don't have to be thinking, I need an idea for a novel. I need an idea for a stand-up set. I need an idea for the vase that I'm painting. You know, we just have to say, I had an idea. I don't know what I'm gonna do with it yet, but it's an idea. It's a creative thought. I'm going to record it. I'm going to hold on to it and I'm going to find a use for it someday. Mm, yeah. I love that. Have you heard Elizabeth Gilbert talk about the elusive creative genius? No, I haven't. She gives it. Well, she talks about it in her book, big magic, but there is a Ted talk that I just, I've listened to it multiple times. And every time I listen, it, uh, it usually brings me to tears and also inspires me. Um, that and she talks about the elusive creative genius as like this muse that sits not within her, but outside of her. And she kind of, as I'm imagining listening to her, it's like this friend that sits in the corner that is kind of like waiting for that person to pay attention to them. Um, and I always think it's helpful. And she was referring to this in, in terms of like um, authors like Elizabeth Gilbert, who have this huge smashing success early on, like Eat, Pray, Love, and then feel kind of eclipsed by that success and feel like, okay, how do I move forward from here if everything that I do now is going to be judged against that right. crazy yeah, success? Tricky. Right. Uh, it's hard. You know, my third novel will probably always be my most successful novel. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really going to be tricky to, to sort of do better than that one, at least in terms of sales. And honestly, maybe in terms of the quality of my writing, to be honest with you, that one just sort of poured out of me in a way that no other book has ever poured out of me. You know, I, the thing I like to think about, or the thing I'm always encouraging is hope. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's so critical as a creative person that you have hope that the next day, tomorrow will yield something of great value. And, you know, I hope that Elizabeth, that, um, Elizabeth Gilbert and someone like me who thinks, well, we might've eclipsed ourselves. I still have the hope mm -hmm. that tomorrow I might surprise myself, mm -hmm. that there might be something else waiting for me. And if there's not, and I, if I write it one A plus book and a bunch of A minus books and some B plus books, that's still not bad. You know, you, mm -hmm. I think we have to be really kind to ourselves. I think, I think creative people tend not to be very kind to themselves. I think we tend to beat, beat ourselves up quite a bit. And so if I end up producing a B plus novel, I'm going to be pretty thrilled about that because mm -hmm. most people are not producing any novels. And so B plus is okay. Yeah. 
That um that brings to mind something I was actually just reading about in the book. Uh, I kind of sometimes when I get books of this nature, I'll flip them open, um, almost like I would pull a tarot card from a tarot deck and kind of see what speaks <laughs> to me that day. <laughs> yeah. And what you're saying is speaking to this passage that I just read for me, and I'll share with you where I'm at. So um, this is this is regarding be a chicken, not a pig. <laughs> and yes. I have an uncorrected proof. So page 153, and it might be slightly different now that the book's out, came out in June. Yeah. Um, but you're, you're talking about your decades-long blogging practice. And what's really salient to me is when you ask yourself, how could I possibly have something to say every day for 20 years? Because this is a daily practice for you, right? Even though you talk about how your blog has changed names three times and um, there have been good days and there have been bad days. But what I love about this is you know, it's not something that has to be perfect, like like you spoke to earlier, but it's something that is like, oh, hey, this is cool. Look at this. And and then you give yourself the grace to say, not everything I write is profound and transformational, but that doesn't mean that it won't be pro profound. This is what I took away. That doesn't mean it won't be profound and transformational for someone else, for one of your readers. And it's still worthwhile to put pen to paper in that sense. Um, and yeah. then you go on to say, but the truth is that I'm a chicken and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I agree with that. I, you know, I've been blogging every single day of my life for almost 20 years now. And, and you're right. There are some days when I am just recording a clever little thing that my son said in my reaction to it. And I put it out into the world. I am so surprised by the things that people respond to. So I will put out something that I think is almost meaningless and hundreds or thousands of people respond to it. And then I will craft something over the course of weeks. I'll be tinkering with it until I feel it's ready to go. And I put it out there and no one says a word about it. So mm -hmm. it's really hard to judge as a creator. But the other thing is when we're constantly creating like this, we also don't know what will ultimately be of value to us. So when I was working on some days today, one of the things I did is I had my production manager go to my blog and I said, I want you to pull every post about anything related to efficiency and productivity that I've written over the last 20 years. Read my blog and find it. And she managed to find things that are now in the book that I wrote 17 years ago without the vision of ever writing Someday Is Today or a book even like it, but just sort of sitting down and saying, hey, here's a quicker way to do something. This might be helpful to you. It's been helpful to me. And 17 years later, it is now supremely helpful to me because it's filling the pages of a book. So again, we can't be judging the value of what we're putting down on the page or on the computer screen. We have to acknowledge we had a thought, we're gonna take a record of it. It might be more valuable to us someday, or you're right, it might be valuable to another person that we can't even anticipate. But the idea is you've just gotta keep moving forward and creating whatever it is that you're creating. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, to me, that's such freedom and permission to, do the thing that calls to you innately without having to have it be a smashing success or mean anything at all. So I appreciate that. I want to ask now I'm, I, there's so many different directions and I, this is just my interview style. I always kind of bounce all over the place, but I do want to ask 
because you say this in the book that someday is maybe your least favorite word in the English dictionary. <laughs> and yeah. it also happens to be the title, uh, part of the title of the book. <laughs> yes. So I'd like, I'd love to hear about that. Well, it's just, you know, it's just a terrible word because I think it gives people permission to procrastinate. Mm. You know, I was talking to someone today, someone who lives in another country, I'll say, and this person is talking about launching a consulting business. And I knew right away that this person was talking about launching a consulting business. And I know it's never going to happen because they've been talking about it for six months. Mm. And in the course of six months, something could have been done. But this person is convinced that someday it's going to get off the ground. And I know in my heart that unless sort of that person has an epiphany, a real turn of fate, or maybe I involve myself in their life in a really aggressive way, if one of those two things don't happen, the business is never going to take off. And I spoke to this person's partner and this person's partner is also convinced that it's never going to happen. Like the person closest, you know, to this dreamer knows this is just a dream. It's not actually going to take action. And it's just the idea that someday gives us permission to put it off and do the things. Wow. Sorry. Do the things that my cat is really unhappy right now. Aww, uh, do the things attention. that make us happy in the day, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I was choosing what to do today, I would go play golf and eat cheeseburgers and then maybe go play golf again. And that would really be wonderful for today. But I know that when I'm a hundred and I look back on this day, you know, and I say, how did you live the day? There's nothing wrong with cheeseburgers and I eat enough of them. And I, there's nothing wrong with golf. I play it often enough, but I know there's other things that I want to accomplish. And mm -hmm. I know that my some days are finite. So it's yeah. not a good word because it just lets us be lazy and it lets, it lets us not achieve our dreams. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for uh, explaining that for me. And I also have a selfish question because I have, I have written a book of poetry and ever since I was a, a wee one, I was in love with words and writing and storytelling. And I have always aspired to write that novel, which I have not done yet. <laughs> so um, you've written 11 books and published nine over the past 12 years. And so I'm wondering for an aspiring writer like me, what is the most important piece of advice? Well, it's, it's not, I feel like the most helpful, but the best piece of advice really is in order to write a book, you have to commit your butt to a chair for a long period of time. Mm. That really is so much of it. Ultimately, we have to write sentences that form paragraphs and paragraphs that form chapters. And all it is is collecting enough sentences in a row that make enough sense that a story can be told. But none of that can happen if we don't put our butt in a chair and our fingers on a keyboard. Yeah. And that means if it's one sentence at a time, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. So when people ask me when I write, I'll say, well, I write in the morning. I do wake up early and I get writing done then. And I'm an elementary school teacher. So on Friday, my school year ends, which means next week I'm on, on summer vacation. Now I have other businesses. My, all my business partners are ready to jump on me and steal my hours away. But I will have more time to write in the summer. But I mostly write in the cracks of my life. So I logged on to our meeting at about 6.45. I was in a dunk tank half an hour ago at my school. 
I jumped out of the dunk tank. I drove home. I looked at the clock and said, I don't have time for a shower yet. So I'll put on pajama pants and a dry t-shirt and I'll log on to the computer, which is exactly what I did. And when I logged on, I looked and said, oh, it's, it's 45 minutes before the top of the hour. I know that you are going to come on at five minutes before the top of the hour. So that gave me 10 minutes. And so I opened up my book and I started working mm-hmm. and I probably wrote about nine sentences before you came on. And then I stopped writing. Mm-hmm. Now that's nine sentences closer to the finish of a book than most people had today. And most people probably would have used that time that I use productively to look at the internet, stare at their phone, check email. And I just, what my wife calls them in the book is black holes. She says, Matt takes all the black holes of his life and makes use of them. And that's what I kind of think of them as now is these little black holes that most people sort of dither away and I refuse to dither them away. So Hmm. if you want to write a book, you got to write one sentence at a time and you can't discount small bits of time. Every bit of time can be valuable. And if you can write one good sentence and attach it to the last one, you're getting closer and closer to that big chain that creates a book. Mm. So you're speaking to task efficiency. That's what it seems like, right? Yeah, um, task efficiency, but also, you know, if you're writing in the way that I've described, which is 12 times a day, sometimes for an hour, and sometimes mm-hmm. for three minutes, that story stays alive in your head as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I know people who say, well, I write on the weekends. And I think, wow, you let that story like fade away for five days and then you bring it back on Saturday. I don't know if that's the best way. You know, if I'm sort of constantly immersed in my story and I'm jumping back into it, even for 10 minutes at a time, I think that's really useful in terms of task efficiency for sure, but just keeping those characters sort of alive and in your brain, I think that's also really helpful too. Mm. So, you know, I think both of those things are working for me. Yeah. Well, were you always a natural storyteller? I mean, it certainly seems like that's something that you practice a lot in your current daily life. I don't think I was a natural. I started writing when I was 17 Mm -hmm. uh, in in an English class in high school, sort of fortunately discovered that I like to write thanks to a teacher. And without exaggeration, I have written every single day of my life since I was 17. And I didn't publish my first novel till I was 34, which means I practiced writing for 17 years before I managed to publish my first book. So I don't think I was talented. I don't think I had the gift or I would have certainly done better sooner. So. You know, although I recognized it as at an early age that sort of if I told stories about myself, particularly embarrassing, humiliating, shameful, amusing failures from my life, I would attract attention, which is what I desperately wanted as a kid. And growing up in a broken home without parents, all I wanted was for someone to pay attention to me. So I've certainly been telling stories all my life, mostly about me to begin with. But I don't know if I was any good at it because I certainly had to practice a lot before I actually garnered the attention of someone who was willing to pay me for my writing. So it took a long time. Mm, yeah, thank you. I'm curious, in your book, you talk about uh, sacred sleep, or I think I believe the phrase is sleep sacredly. Yes. Uh, can you tell me more about this? Sure. So at one point in my life, people would always assume that the way I got things done was I slept less than most people. Mm-hmm. And they would say, Oh, well, you sleep less. And it is true. 
I probably sleep on average between five to six hours a night. But in examining the way people sleep and sort of like, you know, probing their sleep habits, what I discovered was most people are not sleeping nearly as much as they think they are. So my wife is a good example. She'll tell you, I need to get eight hours of sleep a night. Well, she doesn't fall asleep when she gets to bed. She tosses and turns. And she tosses and turns because she doesn't really treat sleep sacredly, doing things like, I don't read in bed and I don't watch television in bed and I don't look at my phone in bed. I'm training my body and my brain to recognize bed as a place that I sleep. And that's the only thing I do there. And so I fall asleep within 30 seconds of putting my head on the pillow every night. My wife will say, without exception, I can fall asleep almost instantaneously. And I can do that at any point during the day. I could lay down right now and you could sort of watch me fall asleep. And I could probably be asleep in two or three minutes. I also practice meditation, which I hate. I thought it was a terrible waste of time. I thought it was woo-woo and nonsense, but it allows me to take a five minute nap in the middle of my day. And it allows me to fall asleep instantaneously in bed because I can empty my mind. Mm. So my wife is up for 30 minutes every night trying to fall asleep. And then she's waking up in the morning and she's snoozing and she's, you know, she's relaxing in bed. Essentially she's spending eight hours in bed, but she's not sleeping eight hours, right? Mm -hmm. So if we can instead look at sleep as sleep and not time spent in bed, oftentimes we can spend less time in bed. If we treat sleep sacredly, we can actually sleep efficiently, which is to say we fall asleep the moment we get in bed. We don't wake up for the entire night. And when we wake up, we wake up in a natural way without an alarm, ideally, sort of just allowing our bodies to release the chemicals that cause us to wake up. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, it's beautiful because you can start your day with a positive frame of mind and joy and excitement, as opposed to how most people wake up in the morning, which is startled out of sleep. And then they use that terrible snooze alarm, which causes them to re-enter a sleep cycle and then instantaneously startle themselves again. So it's a terrible way to begin your day. It's why everyone ends up at work bleary-eyed. It's not because they're tired. It's because they were literally startled awake by a machine rather than doing what their bodies are supposed to do. So if you go to bed at the same time every night and you wake up at the same time every morning, every single day, weekends included, eventually you'll become like me, which is around 4.30 or 4.45 in the morning, right around there, my eyes open. Mm -hmm. And when my eyes open, I feel great because I've allowed my body to wake up properly. I also do things like if you're not using a if you're not using white noise, you're not even trying because white noise is a, it can become a trigger to help you fall asleep quickly. It keeps you asleep all night. So that's an easy fix that can help you with your life. If your room is light in any way, you've got to get yourself some blackout curtains. You've got to treat sleep as one of the most important things. And so I believe in sleep, but I believe in sleeping as little as possible, but as much as you need. So those two things working simultaneously. So if you're waking up around 4, 4.30 a.m., you're going to bed around like 10 p.m.? No, because I'm sleeping five to six hours five a night. Six. So I'm I'm going to bed between 10.30 and 11 and waking up between 4.30 and 5. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting as you're talking about this, I'm reminded of... Um, the mornings when I naturally, like, for example, uh, this morning, I naturally woke up at 5.30 a.m. and I felt relatively awake, like I could have gotten out of bed and gone about my day, but I was thinking to myself, oh, well, I have an extra hour before I need to get up. 
So I went back to sleep. <laughs> My alarm clock goes off and it's a nice chirpy bird. It's not like one of those jarring sounds. Um, so it's a gentle awakening for me at least. Um, but I felt so much more tired after having yeah. slept an extra hour. So I think that's really interesting and I am inspired to give it a try. Well, you have to think about your sleep cycle. I sometimes run into the problem where I will sometimes sort of wake up thanks to the cat at 3.45 in the morning. Like the cat will jump on me. I'll look in my clock and go, it's 3.45. And I say to myself, well, if I go back to sleep now, I'm going to be one hour into a sleep cycle when I want to wake up. And that's a terrible way to wake up. So I have to make the choice then of getting up at 3.45 or saying, I'm going to try to sleep until 5.30 or 6 o'clock so I don't wake up in the middle of a sleep cycle. Mm. And oftentimes what I do is I just get up at 345 because at that point I feel okay. I'm just really cognizant of making sure that I'm mentally prepared for my day and that I feel good. And I'll tell you, 90% of the time when I wake up, I am excited to get out of bed and I feel terrific when I wake up. Mm. And that's how I want everyone to feel. And you can feel that way because that's the way your body is designed. We just have to take advantage of the way our body is built and allow it to do the things that it's supposed to do for us. But we have sort of hacked the hell out of it by alarms and snooze alarms and, and televisions in the bedroom and all of these disastrous things that we do that just sort of ruin the biology that could be working for us. Yeah, I got to tell you, I'm with you with the white noise machine. That is something that came into my life uh, about eight years ago. And I can't, it's my security blanket. I travel with that thing. It goes with me everywhere. So Same here, yeah. 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 And it's a perfect trigger for your body because you hear the white noise. It's the only time you hear it during the day and you train your, just like Pavlov's dog, you know, they ring the bell, the dog salivates, the white noise comes on and your body goes, oh, well, there's only one thing that I do when white noise comes on. Yeah. I go to sleep and therefore your brain begins putting you to sleep. Yeah, I love that one. That's such a great tip. Also, the blackout blinds, that, that was a recent acquisition within the past month. But yes, ugh, makes such a big difference. It really does. It sure does. I love that. Um, so I want to change gears now a little bit because there's uh, a section in your book where you talk about curiosity killing productivity. Um, and I want to hear more about what you mean by that and why it's an important topic to address. So what I like to do is I say I'm deliberately incurious about things that I have no control over. I think that so often people invest their energy and time because they want to know something when knowing that thing doesn't get them any closer to their dreams. So I don't know if I use this example in my book, but one of my favorite moments was when my father-in-law was sitting at the table with me one day and I was opening up the mail and the sales statement from my Korean publisher came in. And essentially it was a check that said, here's the check for the number of Korean books you've sold. And then there was a statement that sort of went into detail. And I took the check and then I went to throw the statement away and he said, what's that? And I said, oh, it's a statement that says how many books I sold in Korea and all the multiple formats. And he goes, don't you wanna know? And I said, actually, no, I don't. And he said, why wouldn't you want to know that? And I said, because I could write five good sentences or I could read the Korean sales statement for a country that I will not visit and cannot speak the language and therefore cannot promote the book any better than it is being promoted already. Like there's nothing I can do to sell books better in Korea 
And therefore having this knowledge will not help me in any way. And he said, but don't you want to know? And I said, no, I want to write five good sentences because that will get the next book into Korea. And that'll make this check that I have here bigger. And I'll get another book out of me, which is really going to make me happy. And he couldn't understand that. And I think most people can't understand that, but I am just constantly and aggressively avoiding things that have no bearing in my life. Or what I like to do with my wife is I say, we divide and conquer. And so we have tasks that we need to do in the house. And oftentimes she takes on something. And the beauty of our relationship is I don't ever have to hear about it again. I think what often happens in a relationship is sort of someone takes over the money, but the person who takes over the money is then constantly reporting on the money to the person who is not handling the money, which really doesn't help the situation anyway. We're not like maximizing efficiency in that way. So I took over the money in our house very early on in the relationship when my wife said, can you just do the money, please? I don't want to worry about it anymore. And I said, yes. And other than the few times in our lives when I've been like, wow, we're going to run out of money. And I need to alert her to the fact that like stop spending or we need to be more sensible. I don't tell her anything about the money. Like I could tell her we have $20 in our account or we have $20 million in our account. And honestly, she wouldn't, both would sound true to her. She would not have any idea. And what I'm doing for her is just taking that off her plate and she's being deliberately and curious about it. She says, Matt's handling it. And when I need to know something, he'll let me know, but he doesn't bother me. And she does the same thing. So, you know, she handles sort of all the medical stuff in our house. Mm. And so like a bill came in the other day from an imaging center. And I said, do I pay the $252 bill from the imaging center? And she said, give me that. I don't think so. Someday, (laughs) eventually, she will come to me and either say, pay the bill, which now it becomes my problem because it's money related, or she's going to fight with some imaging center for the next six months until we don't have to pay the bill. But I don't have to know about it. She's not going to give me a blow by blow account of her fight with the imaging center. Like she's just taking that off my plate and I'm going to be aggressively incurious about it. I don't care about it until it's something that she needs to shift over to me. And I think when we do that, when we, when we start to just be disinterested in things that we don't need to be interested in, we have more time for the things we actually want to do. Mm -hmm. And so I just try to not be curious about things that have no bearing in my life or things that are being taken care of by someone else. Mm, Yeah, it seems like there's a tremendous amount of trust that should or has been established between your partner and yourself in order for something like that to work well. Is that true? Yes. And I think if you don't have that trust, (laughs) you may have chosen the wrong partner. Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps. Yes. Or, or maybe you're in a rough patch, let's say. Sure. Um, but mm-hmm. ideally, I think what happens, honestly, in relationships is that I just think people like to talk about problems. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think in life, people tend to want to talk about problems. And I think one of the most kind and loving things you can do for your partner is to not burden them with problems that you can handle on your own. There are times when like, absolutely, I'm having a problem and I need to share my problem with Alicia. She needs to help me with this thing. I'm having a hard time with it. But if she can't do anything for me and I can handle it on my own, even though I might want to whine and complain about something to her, it drains her spirit in a way that I don't need to do that to her. Mm. So um, I, I just think when we cannot do that to the people we love, 
that is great for them. And it helps them get closer to their goals and their dreams. So would you be an advocate to process things that you need to process that oftentimes we might process with friends or loved ones with uh, an objective third party, like a counselor or um, a psychiatrist? Yeah, I'm a big supporter in that. Now I have, I suffer from PTSD, um, the result of things that happened to me in the past. Thankfully, PTSD doesn't often affect me these days. Occasionally, something will flare up. So I have sort of a once every three week meeting with a therapist. And it's supposed to be a meeting about my post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And so we always begin the call with, so how's your PTSD? And I say, it's not a problem, I'm good. And then he says, what else would you like to talk about? And I have a great 45 minute discussion where I can unload things that might be you know, plaguing me in some way. And I am aware of I'm unloading this or I'm talking to my therapist about this. Therefore, Alicia doesn't need to know about it unless it's something she would want to know about or something she needs to know about. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of that. I also know there's sort of, I've noticed that there's definitely differences and perhaps related to gender. So I'm a, I tend to be the person that like, if I have a problem, I identify the person who is most likely to be able to help me solve that problem. And that's the person I'll speak to. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that when my wife has a problem, she gets on the phone with her sister and she talks to her sister about the problem. And then she gets on the phone with her friend and she talks about her friend about the problem. Then she gets on the phone with her mother and she talks about her mother with them. And I've noticed that sort of being an elementary school teacher, I spend most of my time with women. I've found that like, maybe it's gendered that there's a certain level of comfort and being able to talk through a problem multiple times. Maybe that is a good way to process a solution. I tend to be someone who wants to find the one true source, get the answer I need and then move on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think probably both are fine, but I, I do think there's a lot of value in, in just identifying the things that our loved ones need to hear and yeah. identifying the things that our loved ones don't need to hear. That works at work too. I definitely have colleagues who walk into my classroom and tell me things that I don't need to know, don't need to hear, and I'm busy trying to get something else done. And they're not even looking for a solution. They're just really there to complain about something. And so I aggressively try not to do that to colleagues, to walk into their classrooms and just complain, not looking for a solution, but just wanting to air my grievances. There's nothing productive about airing your grievances. Yeah, agreed. I struggle with that as as identifying as female and a woman uh, because I identify with what you're saying in terms of me feeling like it's hard to go to my sister, my friend, and kind of unload these things that feel like they're my issues to solve. And I generally tend to process them internally or use a third-party objective um, person like a counselor. And it seems to me like what's what I'm noticing is happening lately in my life is that uh, it feels like I'm not sure how to have female friendships anymore, which is kind of like, oh gosh, what's wrong with me? Is this a thing that I can't do? I can't hold, I can't hold space for their issues that they feel like they need to process with me because I'm like overwhelmed by it. And I, I don't feel like I have the space or the energy to process with them. And I, and I want to have empathy, but I also don't want to be like, like I'm, I feel like I'm showing up and giving a hundred percent of my energy. And oftentimes it doesn't feel like it's enough for this, for this other person. And so I don't know, I suppose it can, I'm curious, do you feel a little bit lonely? I feel a little bit like not lonely, but, uh, um, questioning, am I able to do this thing called female friendship? 
it feels like I'm not able to do that very well. <laughs> well, I don't feel lonely. I have plenty of friends and, mm -hmm. you know, I think what it sounds like to me is that you're taking care of yourself mm -hmm. and taking mm -hmm. care of yourself sometimes means I can't do this right now. My wife is great at that. You know, someone will call her and she'll just say, we are having dinner right now. I can't talk. Mm -hmm. And what happens oftentimes is that person moves on to the next person yeah. and they never circle back around. Right. Yeah. Uh, now she's not lying. She's not sort of shuffling people off and making up stories, but she absolutely will say, we're reading to the kids right now and I can't talk. And unless it's an ultimate emergency, that's it for her. I know that's not the way for many people. You know, I've witnessed where the phone rings, like it's weird that the phone rings and people feel obligated to answer it. Mm. And when the phone rings, I always think this is an alert that someone wants to say something to me and I will get back to them on my time, mm. you know? So uh, the ringing of a phone should really be perceived as like sort of an auditory email, you know, sort of like, okay, the phone rang and my friend Kaya wants to talk to me, but this is not an ideal time for me to speak to Kaya. So I will not answer the phone. Mm -hmm. I mean, phones work beautiful today. You can get your visual voicemail. So she can leave the message, which essentially just turns it into an email anyway, that I can then read in, you know, at my leisure and decide whether I need to call her back. So I think we have to be careful that just because someone wants to talk to us doesn't mean that we should be talking to them at that moment. You know, mm -hmm. my students have gotten me really good at this. Uh, you know, I've got 24 kids this year and I can tell that kids are frustrated with adults mm -hmm. and the way they like treat their phones as my phone dinged, I have to look at it this moment. Mm -hmm. And so that happens in my class sometimes. My phone will ding and I will look at it thinking I need to look at it. And my students will call me on it and say, why are you looking at your phone? Like you're teaching me, you know? And I'm thinking, well, I'm looking at my phone because Mrs. Snow needed an answer from me. And I think she's looking for that answer right now, you know, but they're also right. Like, yes, Mrs. Snow needs an answer to something, you know, that's going to happen two hours later at lunch, but they're right. Like, why am I treating the ding as such a priority that I must look at it at this second? And I think kids are really frustrated at parents and adults for doing that because I think they feel neglected. And um, I think that's bad, but I also think it's bad for us. Mm -hmm. I think it's bad that we are responding to the dings and the bings and the bongs of our life with such priorities instead of sort of saying, I deal with text messages at the top of every hour. Mm -hmm. And so if you text me at some point during the hour, I will get to your text message at the top of the hour. That's when I'll look at my phone once at the top of every hour. That would be like a wonderful way to be. I'm not there yet, um, but my students have started moving me in that direction. Mm, I love that. What great reminders. Kids are, kids are such good teachers in that way, aren't they? Yeah. Well, they're not nice. And I think that's actually super helpful that they don't try to sugarcoat things. Yeah. You know, they just hit you really hard. And sometimes that's not great. You know, they go like, where's all your hair? You know, what happened to that head of hair you once had, you know, or I've been told my, my elbows are ashy. That's the new thing they're complaining about. You have ashy elbows. So like, it's not always good. You know, I don't always want to hear everything they have to say to me, but boy, they speak the truth. And sometimes that truth just stabs you in the heart.
Yeah, it does. It's, it can also be refreshing and quite, uh, I, my nephew lives with us. He's, he's 20 years old. And, um, just a quick little side story. I was holding a bottle of, I think it was like Advil or something. And I was doing that thing. First time anyone ever caught me doing it and called me out where I was holding the bottle away from my face so I could read the label instead of just holding it up close to my face because I could see close without my glasses. Yeah. And he was like, I t he speaks Spanish. So he's like, idea, you look like, he said it in Spanish, you look like an old person holding the bottle away from you to read it. Isn't it easier His in his mind? And I get where he's coming from. It's easier to see it close up. Why would you pull it away? And I had to explain to him like, well, when you get older, your eyesight changes. <laughs> Yeah. And that made me feel really old. It was also kind of comical. And I felt immediately like, oh, I'm turning into my parents and that whole conversation. But I think a little dose of humility now and then I is okay. Fine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I get more than a dose, but um, but I'm they're, sure they're worth it. They're worth yeah. it. Yeah. 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 I, I'd love to hear about your experience on the moth stage, the Grand Slam moth. If you have a, a particular experience you want to share, or a story you want to share, um, I just, those stories are just amazing. So I'll let you take it. Yeah. Well, so the moth is a international storytelling organization. It's where I got my start telling stories, you know, back in 2011. I mean, it changed my life. You know, in July of 2011, I went to New York City to compete in a moth story slam competition. My plan was tell one story, never do it again. I was sort of went there on a dare for my friends. I put my name in the hat. You know, they draw out 10 names over the course of the night. Those 10 people get to tell a story. As soon as I put my name in the hat, I sort of prayed that my name would not be picked. There was 20 names in the hat. So I thought, just, just put, don't leave it like leave it in the bag and then I'll go home and tell my friends I tried and that'll be good enough. And throughout the night, my name didn't get picked. I was so happy. And then finally my name got picked 10th and I couldn't believe it. You know, I was already sort of mentally on my way home and uh, I didn't move at first because it occurred to me, no one knew me. Like no one knows who I am. No one knows who's Matthew Dick. So if I just sit very still and very quiet, they'll choose another name. But my wife was with me that night. So she kicked me under the table and she said, that's your name. And I said, I know. I said, I don't want to tell that story anymore. And she said, we came all this way. You're going to tell your story. Thank God she did. So, so, you know, a moth story slam or then a grand slam championship, they're both sort of the same. You take the stage, you have five minutes to tell a true story about yourself uh, to a group of people. And in that group of 200 to 900 to 1200 people, whatever it is that night, there's three sets of judges and they judge you numerically. They hold up numbers like, like at an ice skating competition, you know, and so you tell your story and then they tell you you're the value of your life based upon their numerical, you know, judgment. And um, the person who has the highest score at the end of the night wins. And I won my first one. I got lucky and, you know, I, a lot of things came together for me that night. I had, been writing novels and stories all my life and I'm a wedding DJ so I had been standing in front of people for 20 years speaking extemporaneously to large audiences so I had no nerves or fear and I never have sort of standing in front of people and I'm an elementary school teacher so I stand in front of the worst audience possible 10 year olds <laughs> and I have to entertain them in order to teach them and so all of that sort of came together on the stage that night and allowed me to be successful I also remember was that person who early on understood that when I tell stories about my stupidities, my failures, my shames, my humiliations, 
people are more drawn to you in that regard. So I understood, get on the stage and tell them about a terrible thing you did or a stupid thing you did or an embarrassing thing you did. That'll always be more winning. So I knew that too. And so all of that came together and I won that night. And if you win a slam, a story slam, you get to go on to the Grand Slam Championship where all the winners from the last 10 slams compete against each other. And I got to do that. And um, I've been telling stories ever since, you know, so I've, I've told well over a hundred stories. I was there last night at a moth in Boston and um, it's something I love to do. Now I tell stories all over the world now and we produce our own show and I tell stories for lots of different people, but there's nothing like going to the moth. It's still the favorite place for me to go, even though it's the only place I perform now that nobody pays me. Like they don't pay you any money to perform anywhere else I go. I'll actually walk home with money. I'd rather do it for free at the moth than get paid to do it somewhere else. Mm. It's joyous. Yeah. There's something really special about those stories. They, they often, uh, I think it's NPR that will produce them and, and yeah. share them out. If you're not in the specific location, I don't know if you have any links to a story you told on the moth. That is well, live. if you go to the moth, um's website, the moth.org, you just type in my name and I think they've aired eight or 10 of my stories on NPR over the years. So you can listen to those. Or if you just go to my YouTube channel, just Matthew Dix on YouTube, you'll find um, they re- they record with video the stories as well. Okay. So I post my stories there too. So you can watch me perform there. Uh, well, we'll definitely make sure that gets into the show notes. Thank you. Um, I want to be mindful of your time. So I have one final question for you. And that is, what is the most important thing that you hope readers will take away from your book? Oh, well, I, I think, you know, well, from the book, I just hope they start to understand how important it is to take advantage of the time that we have. You know, I was fortunate in a terribly unfortunate way when I was young uh, to have been robbed at gunpoint. And it was a really awful and violent moment in my life. And for a few minutes, I was absolutely certain I was going to die. And uh, I thought I was in the final minutes of my life. And, you know, even though it was violent and awful, I wasn't afraid and I wasn't angry. You know, the only feeling I felt was regret, Mm. Uh, thinking this is the last minute of my life and I have not used it well. And I never want to feel that way again. And I never want anyone to ever feel that way. Like I I just report to the world that is the worst way to feel at the end of your life, that you have, that you've wasted the time that you had, this precious time that we have on this planet. And that doesn't mean you should be relentlessly pursuing your career or your goals, because I fill my life with my children and my cats and my wife and golf and basketball and the New England Patriots. I make sure that I maximize the time that I have so that I can do the work I want to do and make the dreams come true that I have dreamt throughout my life, but also to do all those other wonderful things. Mm -hmm. And I just think too many people spend time watching television and staring at their phones and thinking about things that they might do someday instead of sitting down or jumping up or wherever they need to go to do the thing that they want to do, they just spend so much time thinking that they'll do it tomorrow or 
or planning something in their head instead of doing it. So I think the thing I want people to take away from the book is the idea that that we just have to make sure that this precious time we have is spent well. And if that means lying under a tree and looking up at the sky, because that makes you happy, like just do that a lot, mm. you know, rather than the things that we have filled our lives with. And so be relentless in your pursuit of maximizing the time that we have so that it can do everything you want to do. So at the end of your life, you can look back and go, I lived a really great life and I did the things I wanted to do, thank goodness. That's what I want for everyone. I love that. Thank you, Matthew. That's a great way to wrap up our show. I just want to say thank you, Matthew. I really appreciate your time for sharing your experience, your story, your wisdom with us. And yeah, thank you for being here. It was my pleasure. It's something I adore talking about. So thank you for the opportunity to do so. Everyone, that concludes another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you learned something new, maybe remembered something old, maybe felt inspired to apply something to your life. My, <laughs> you can hear my dog in the background. She's doing a little happy dance. Um, so Daisy enjoyed it. Anyhow, I wanted to just pop in here to wrap us up to say a couple of things. Number one, I have such an amazing team that helps me put these podcasts together. Without them, I wouldn't you know, be able to bring these amazing conversations to you. So thank you to my producer, my director of creative services, my sound editor, my um, engineer, Consistency Media don't know what I would do without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the amazing creation and artistic musical genius Drew Lovern. Thank you so much for putting together this music for specifically for outside the studio. So unique to the show. Only place you're ever going to hear it is right here. Thanks you guys. You make my world go round. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, share on the socials, especially if it's a show that you think, hey, this could help somebody else. That's what this is all about, right? We're sharing information so that we're better, um, so that we're inspired, so that we're lifting each other up and we're learning how to be in this world, living on this planet to the best of our ability, sharing information and inspiring one another. And that's my hope. That's my hope for the show. Take care.